Hey, this is Anna. I want to let you know that this episode is about and includes descriptions of intimate partner abuse. If you need them, we have resources at our website, deathsexmoney.org. I think, you know, it's created a sense of skepticism in me that I didn't have before. I can identify sort of certain patterns and things like I think that I couldn't before, sort of rubbed a little bit of the sheen off of the world. And I don't, for better or for worse, like it's the person that I've become. This is Death, Sex, and Money. You're going to get in here and give me a kiss. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Maybe I should stop paying you. And need to talk about more. Do I have to tell you how close we are to plummeting to our deaths? I'm Anna Sale. Writer Carmen Maria Machado's latest book is a memoir of a relationship in her 20s, one that she now calls abusive. When you say, like, I was abused or, like, my ex abused me, people get very nervous. Like, there's just, like, a the word creates a lot of anxiety in people in all kinds of directions. But it's much, it's, like, a useful shorthand when you're like, do you have four hours or do you have one second? Like, I could say to you, (laughs) I could tell you the whole thing or I could just say to you, like, I was in an abusive relationship. And, like, it sort of encompasses a lot of different experiences. And I think it, I, I believe that my experiences fit into that category. Landing on that word, though, was not easy. Carmen's relationship, she writes in her book, In the Dream House, didn't fit into the images of what comes up when you say abusive relationship. She was with a woman, and for the most part, their fights were verbal attacks. The wounds didn't leave marks. Dream house as epiphany, she writes at one point. Most types of domestic abuse are completely legal. Carmen is 33 now and has been with her wife for seven years. The relationship Carmen documents in her book happened years ago, in her mid-20s, when she was a grad student at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. It was her first relationship with a woman. She dated men before that, but had thought about being with women since she was a teenager. And I remember once having this fantasy so far back that it was before identified as queer, where I basically was like, if I never meet a man and marry him, I would like to, like, live in a big house with a bunch of women and we just, like, garden and cook and, like, have a million animals. Um, what it looked like was this, like, weird, beautiful, queer utopia um, scenario. <laughs> so I feel like maybe when I rolled into this relationship, like, what was in my brain was, like, obviously a slightly more sophisticated version of that with the understanding that I was queer um, but having not lost any of that idealism, um, yeah. which is a super, super bad combination, as it turns out, because um, I knew nothing, and I had this really, really rosy view of what it could be. Oh. When you first were noticing that you were attracted to her and she was attracted to you, what did you like about the way you felt when you were with her? I liked, I mean, she looked at me. You know, I was like a weird, awkward, fat girl, woman, young woman. And like, I had sort of watched a lot of people in my life like have relationships and have people be really into them. And like, I just didn't know what that looked like. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was something, and I felt like I was always doing the chasing. I was always sort of 
pursuing people and I was always the one who was sort of trying to how to initiate things. And I just wanted somebody to like look at me and be like, I want you, you know? And that's exactly what she did. I mean, I, I don't know. It feels so silly to say it out loud because it feels so minor and so simple. And no, like it's it, like, huge. could it possibly that be that easy? But like, you know, like I mean, I think when I look back on it, I mean, when I was writing this memoir, like I kept thinking like how embarrassing it was, how easy that was, you know, and how I just sort of like, you know, I imagine it's like, you know, how the dodos, like when the men landed on those islands and the dodos just like waddle right up to them because they're like, what the fuck are you? You know? So you're the dodo in this metaphor. Yes. But she walked up to you. Like she, you're describing that she like huh. saw you, she looked at you and you weren't having to work for it. Yeah. Well, like, I guess I also think that, um, you know, I I didn't have a great sense of, like, at the time I felt like, like, you could look at that scenario and be like, oh, then she, you know, how could you be the dodo because she's, you know, she's the one who's sort of putting her heart out there. But, like, the fact is actually that's not what was happening at all. Um, because in re- in retrospect, like, what was actually happening was, like, part of a, it's part of, like, a like a fairly identifiable pattern. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of, like, love bombing. Um Tell me about love bombing. I don't know what that means. It's this idea, and it doesn't just apply to abusive relationships, but it just applies to, like, like where there's, where sort of part of the process of being sort of prepared for this, like, cycle of, like, worship and sort of devastation um, is this sort of, like, walking up to somebody and being like, you are perfect, you are everything, you are a flawless human being, like, and, and sort of creating this sense of, like, like, putting them up on this massive, massive pedestal for the purpose of them being sort of knocked down. And I say this, I don't mean to say it as if, like, that's, like, part of a calculating plan because I feel like it's a lot more complicated than that, but it's sort of this, like, first step. So this first step was somebody saying to me, like, I want you. Like, I'm obsessed with you. Everything about you is perfect, which was just a thing that no one had ever said to me before. Their connection was intense, enveloping even. And so, too, Carmen learned early on were their fights. She says her ex, that's what she calls her in the book, would scream at her, say demeaning things to her. I remember, like, when my ex would yell at me, there was just this, I mean, I feel like the only way to describe it, it's like your esophagus getting kind of yanked to the side. There's, like, this sort of brief kind of nausea that would happen. Was there a pattern that developed, like, when she would become angry and curse at you, how would you respond and then how would she respond? What became the pattern? Sometimes I would cry. Sometimes I would get angry and I would be angry at her and I would say, like, that was really horrible. It was a horrible thing to say to me. Um, sometimes I would just kind of shut down and be like, I don't I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to deal, deal with this right now. And then she would get angry that I wasn't speaking. I mean, it was sort of like this, like, endless cycle, you know, couldn't, like, mm-hmm. I couldn't really, I couldn't really escape it. Because, yeah, if I, if I said something, then she would, you know, we'd sort of yell and there'd be more yelling. And if I didn't say anything, she would be like, I hate it how you, you just, like, you just, like, don't respond to me. It was like nothing I could do was, like, correct or right. Um, and, you know, and as the relationship can progress, I mean, her emotional response, I, I mean, Certain things became triggers that, you know, were, like, recognizable. Like, she was very jealous. And so anything that could be perceived as me expressing, you know, ha- like, happiness about the presence or existence of another person, 
of any mm-hmm. kind became like a kind of trigger. So did you have learned to avoid talking about other people? Who I did. I did. Yeah. Anytime I mentioned anybody, I mean, if I was like, I have a student who did really great on a t- on a paper on a story, she'd be like, "Do you want to ha- do you want to have sex with that with that student?" And I'd be like, "No. What the hell is wrong with you?" I mean, in the beginning, I felt like I felt very exasperated a lot, you know, because mm-hmm. I was like, "What? What are you?" I was like, "I don't even know how to respond to this." But then by the end, I feel like I was just like, um, "Sorry, I don't. No, I don't want to sleep with that person. I'm sorry for bringing it up." Um, or I just wouldn't bring people up at all. When this was just starting in your relationship, when these angry outbursts were happening, when these fights were, were taking on this intensity, did you think it was normal? I think I thought, I mean, it was sort of a combination of things. I knew that people, I mean, obviously I had seen my parents fight, and I knew that like that was a thing that some people did. And I also remember her saying to me this thing that I didn't, I've never forgotten, which is like she was like, you know, lesbian, this is just what it's like to date a woman. Like women are more intense. Like these relationships are more intense. And I guess I had no reason not to believe her because I was like, I mean, you would be the expert because she had dated lots of women. And like she was my first girlfriend. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, I guess I believe you if you say to me that, like, lesbians are just different in this way. I don't know. And and I think it just seemed like I was like, well, you know, I, I guess I have intense emotions. Like, I guess that makes sense. Um, I mean, it just it just seemed to me like it just seemed like it made sense in the moment. And I was like, OK, well, yeah, I guess you would know. But also I was, you know, 24, I think. Yeah. Like, I was so little. Their relationship lasted about a year. For a lot of it, they didn't live in the same town. Carmen would drive from the apartment she shared with roommates to the house her ex lived in a few hours away. That was the site of a lot of these fights, including the one when Carmen says her ex threw things at her, came after her, and Carmen barricaded herself in the bathroom. She just kept hurling her body against the door over and over and screaming and screaming and screaming. And I I just didn't know... I was so scared and just, I mean, I was hysterical. I mean, I was, like, so beside myself. I didn't even know what to do. And and then later when it stopped and I opened the door, she was just, like, sitting there being like, what what, ha- what happened? Why are you so upset? What did you think was happening? I truly had no idea. You know, I Googled a lot of stuff because I was like, what could possibly cause somebody? You know, it's funny because, I, I mean, now I know the language for, for that, which is a dissociative episode, but... I, I didn't actually even know, so I just was, like, Googling, like, you know, a memory lapse. You know, I was, just trying to, I was just Googling, like, whatever word I could think of. And it's like, if you don't have the right words, if you don't know what you're looking at or you can't look at it, like, there's so much you can miss. And I really wanted there to be an explanation that it was like, it is not her fault, you know. Um, if I'm like, oh, I threw up this morning— and then I, you know, you're like, okay, that's a inf- piece of information. And then I'm like, oh, it's because I drank really a lot last night. You'd be like, oh, God, like that's gross and irresponsible. Or I could be like, oh, I had the flu. And you're like, oh, poor baby, you know. And it's like one of those like invites judgment. And the other one is just like, oh, you can't help yourself. You were sick, you know. And I feel like I wanted there to be an explanation where I could be, if, you got to be like, poor baby. Like, I know you did something really scary. It was really scary and awful, but like it wasn't your fault. And I don't blame you. And I needed that to be true. Like, I needed that to be a fact. 
thinking the alternative meant that, like, I was, it meant, like, looking at what was actually happening, and I didn't want to do that. Coming up, what happened after Carmen's relationship with her ex finally ended, and she talked to other people in her life about whether they knew? I do know that some people feel guilty, that they didn't notice or they didn't know it was that bad. But I do feel like just somebody being like, you seem different, like you've changed, like acknowledging that was like, yeah, like it was something, there was something, I don't know. It's just good. It's like, it's like when it, it becomes about the burdens being carried by another person a little bit. Since our collaboration with NPR's Code Switch podcast about race and friendship came out, we've been hearing from many of you about what you're still reflecting on from these episodes. Probably the thing that resonated with me the most from the episode is when Antoinette was talking about the hierarchy of feelings. This is Sheena, a listener from Atlanta. She reached out to us while we were putting together these episodes, and again, after listening. And Sheena said hearing Antoinette's story about how she's felt obligated to take care of a white colleague's feelings at work sounded really familiar. A white boss would talk to me about personal things that were going on in her life and would seek emotional comfort from me. And when I work for you, it's not my job to emotionally comfort you. I'm not your friend. I'm your report. And so um, the fact that she felt so comfortable to act like that with me in the workplace made me feel that she was taking advantage of the power dynamic between us, of her being a white woman and me being a black woman, and that I would feel obligated to be there for her and to support her out of fear of what would happen if I didn't. We want to know more about what you're getting out of these episodes. Send us an email or record a quick voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. And stick around at the end of this episode to hear something entirely different. Last week, I interviewed my colleague Andrea Bernstein, the co-host of the Trump Inc. podcast, about her new book, American Oligarchs, The Kushners, the Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. We're sharing a bit of that conversation with you at the end of this episode. And on our next episode, Twyla Tharp. The legendary dancer and choreographer talks with me about aging and how she sees her body and its limitations. You can feel very sorry for yourself. You can definitely feel yourself as victimized. Oh, I have lost so much. Oh, I used to be able to run so much faster, so much further. Well, yes. Uh, But did every step mean as much to you as these do? This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts.
This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Carmen Maria Machado writes in In the Dream House about how her relationship with her ex ended. Her ex wanted to be with someone else and broke it off. Carmen didn't think of their relationship as abusive until she was talking to friends about the breakup in the months afterward. Somewhere in that conversation, like in that whole sort of summer where I was like talking to people and kind of again, like sort of doing like kind of an autopsy of what had happened, that that word began to make sense to me um, as a as a way of describing what had happened. And can you tell me about that? Like, what were the things when you were trying to decide if that word fit or not? What What are the things that you would think about? I mean, I had only ever really thought of the word as meaning the sort of the way that we all talk about it or that people generally think of it, like like a, like a man beating up on his wife. So to think of abuse as either a thing that could happen between any other sort of combination of folks in any gender or sexual identity or thinking of it as a thing that doesn't require somebody to give you a black eye, I think took a lot of sort of reading. I, it's funny because I, for the, for the tour I've been doing for the book, um, they had this awesome um, advocate do this, like, really lovely sort of fact sheet Mm. so that people can pick it up. And it has, like, resources and things, but also she's sort of written this little bit about what is abuse. She's like, you know, I could give you, like, a list of things to look for, but, like, really what the way way to think about it is, like, whose life is diminished and whose 
fears, concerns, you know, motivations, et cetera, like animate the relationship. Which again, like I didn't have that language back then, but like I feel like reading that I felt this real sense of just like, yeah, like, like somebody, there was somebody who ran things and somebody who became less than themselves, you know, and I was the person who became less than herself and felt like unrecognizable at the end of it. As this relationship was ending, how important was it to have people in your life who had been sort of witnesses to different moments of of some of these fights who could help say, like, no, your memory is, is right? The fact that I had anybody was really helpful because I didn't have many folks. And the people that I did have, it was mostly kind of incidental. Like, for example, my roommates knew just because I lived with them and they just overheard a lot of stuff, you know, and that's something that she couldn't really avoid. There was a time when I was crying every night. Every night I would cry for like four hours because she would be like yelling at me on the phone and then I would like come out of my room just like dehydrated and like puffy-faced and looking like I'd been run over by a truck and they would just be like, hey, you know, <laughs> like. You wouldn't talk about it. They just would They would just, it. well, they would hear it, you know. And I think for a while they didn't quite know, like, what to do or what to say. And it was only when sort of, like, it ended, they they really were like, we always hated that bitch. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, after it was over, they were just like, they were like, you know, and they were amazing the whole time. But I think they sort of didn't want to say, like, well, fuck her, like, while we were still dating, you know. Like, that was, I think, a very complicated thing for them. Um, but then as soon as it was actually over for good, they were, like, very comfortable, like, telling me all the thoughts that they had had, you know, while we were dating. And I'm really grateful to them that they exist as these people who, like, you know, in the face of in the face of folks saying, like, I don't think it was that bad or, like, it probably didn't happen or whatever people say, Um. There are people who are like, oh, my God, like, I saw I saw the worst of it. Like, I saw how—I mean, not, not the worst worst, because the worst worst happened, like, in her home and was private. But I saw a lot of it, and it was very bad, you know? And that was actually something that was really comforting to me. And I think ultimately, like, kept me from feeling like I was completely going off the rails. Because I—because I, even when I was, like, maybe— like, even when I would sort of be like, maybe it wasn't that, you know, like, I would have these, like, doubts. They'd be like, do you remember this? Do you remember when, like, she screamed at you for so long and then she broke up with you and then she kept calling you and calling you, I had to take the battery, we had to take the battery out of your phone? Like, do you remember that? It was just useful to have somebody sort of saying that to me. You know, now, I mean, I feel like... Oh, I was trying so hard to do it right. I really was. And I feel like also, you know, I'm sure that I did things that were not per Like, I'm not a perfect person. And, you know, I am currently in, like, a really wonderful, stable, healthy, loving relationship. You know, sometimes, sometimes I fuck up. Sometimes she fucks up. Like, you know, we're human beings and, like, relationships are complicated. But I feel like to be in a scenario now where I feel like everybody's operating in good faith— you know, and even when we're at our most hurt or our most scared, like, 
everyone's still just sort of like trying their best. And there's this sense of like care. I mean, it's funny because only now being in it and it seems so wonderful that I'm like, oh God, I can't believe I thought that anything different was okay. You know, I can't believe I ever thought that any other way of thinking about this made sense to me. Because this this seemed, this is like, this is how it should look. Um, but I didn't know. Even after her ex was out of her life, their relationship was woven into who Carmen is. For starters, Carmen met her wife Val because of that relationship. Val dated Carmen's ex before she did and was an important support after the breakup. And Carmen says the cruel things that her ex said to her during some of their fights are still present, rattling around in her head. There's still things that I do that I catch myself doing that are like artifacts of that relationship. I always want to like tell my spouse like, I was here, here are all the things that I did, here are all the people I saw, here's a text from my friend about our plans that we made together. Like I'm always trying to like establish my my alibi, oh. which is so horrible because like there's no reason for me to do that with my wife. There's no, she's never asked that of me. She's never like been suspicious and I still do it. And I catch myself doing it and then I get very angry at myself. You know, I'll be like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why, why, why are you doing that still? Something I noticed reading your book is there's a few different places where you talk about all the time that you spent, the, implying that it was sort of wasted time during your during your MFA program, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. during this relationship where there was fighting or traveling back and forth to be with one another. Um, and I wonder if now that you have this book in your hands, you can see that you were working through something important. Yeah, I think I can see that. I mean, I still think, I guess none of it's wasted time if, like, it's just part of your life. You know, it's like, yeah, it it, it made me, I mean, not, not I'm not, it's funny because it's like this sense of, should I be grateful for this experience? I'm not grateful for it. I think it was horrible. But it also, like, brought me, like, the person I'm married to. And it brought me a really, like, I think, healthy sense of perspective on a lot of things. I feel like I had my half of the conversation. I wrote the book. And now people get to have their own half of the conversation, whatever that is. I mean, I really wish I hadn't spent the second year of my MFA being yelled at and traveling all over creation and, like, just having myself kind of broken apart in this way. But also, I did. And I wrote a book and, I mean, you know, it's funny. People keep asking me, like, why this book right now? And I, I keep being like, well, the true answer is that I kind of had to get it out of my system because I feel like it just defined so much of that part of my life. And I just needed to, like, pass it like a kidney stone, you know. <laughs> um, and now I have, for better or for worse. And I did turn it into something. And she's real sad, but she's pretty good. I mean, she being the book. I was struck by how you said, this is my half of the conversation and other people are having another another half of the conversation. Like, um, it makes me think about, like, how, how, how challenging it can be to tell stories about a relationship mm-hmm. because um, 
both after the fact and while you're in it, when you're trying to figure out whether you're in a healthy relationship or an unhealthy relationship, like it can be, it can be confusing to to figure out who are the reliable narrators and sure. who aren't. Yeah, um, of course. And I just like um, after being in this relationship where for for so long you 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 felt um, you didn't have the words for what was happening, and now you've written this book about what was happening. What has that been like to say this happened to me and this is this is how I experienced it I mean I guess I wish I could say it was like empowering which I feel like is like the natural answer to that question I don't know if it was but I I don't know I guess there's something strange about having it sort of fixed in time you know and like I will keep probably meditating on this relationship and on this book. And it's possible that in like five years, I'll have like a different feeling about who I was back then and who I am now. Because, you know, whenever you write a book, you're always like fixing something in time, right? You're like stopping the clock mm. and being like, here is like Carmen in 2000, you know, 18, 2019, meditating on Carmen from 2011. And like, it will always be that relationship, you know, it's never, you know, unless I write about, I write, like, an, another chapter when I'm, like, you know, in my 40s. Like, it's always going to be that, like, those two, like, sort of versions of myself looking looking at each other. And I don't know. It's just strange. I mean, I don't know if I found it cathartic. Like, I found writing the book very painful. Um, it's strange to just have it in book form. I don't know. It's like this because I felt it used to feel so like weird and messy and it was just like trying to wrestle like a kraken. And now it's just like this little book that you can hold in your hand. That's Carmen Maria Machado. Her memoir is in the dream house. It was included on many best of the year lists in 2019. And we've got a link to that abuse fact sheet that Carmen mentioned up on our website. It was put together by Haijin Shim and Grey Wolf Press specifically for queer survivors of abuse. But it offers insights and resources that are useful for everyone. That's at deathsexmoney.org. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Ayo Osabamiro. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Carmen told me she's proud that her book is complicating ideas about who abuse happens to in relationships. And she hopes it makes more people feel like they can share what they've been through. I sort of like I've said the thing I have to say. You know, I pass the kidney stone. Now someone else gets to see the metaphor breaks down. If I talk about it as a kidney stone, because then I'm like, then somebody else gets to pass the kidney. No, somebody else has to hold it. I don't know. Uh, a kidney stone that becomes a baton. I know, that right? Pass on. <laughs> that's horrible. That's so gross. Uh, that's super disgusting. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 
And before you go, I want to share some of my conversation with Andrea Bernstein, the co-host of the Trump Inc. podcast, which is also put out by WNYC Studios and produced with ProPublica. Andrea has written a new book about the Trump family and Jared Kushner's family called American Oligarchs, the Kushners, the Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. And let me tell you, it is chock full of death, sex, and money. I talked to Andrea on stage last week at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco about the intermingling of money and politics for the two families, including for Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump. Something else you document thoroughly in the book is for Fred Trump. He knew that real estate was not just about location, location, location. It was about political donation, donation, donation. (laughs) And I wondered, do you have a sense of how he learned how to maneuver around New York City politics at that point in city history? I mean, he was a really entrepreneurial guy. And he... I mean, he worked really hard. His father died, his father Friedrich Trump died in the Spanish influenza epidemic and he, when he was a teenager. And he had a job where he would pull carts on icy roads because the mules would slip. So he was a hardworking guy and he was in real estate. And what he figured out in the mid 30s is he wanted to get a piece of a bankruptcy a company that was in bankruptcy court was being divided up. And the judge really had wide discretion about who was going to get the pieces. And he really wanted to get a piece. So he figured out at that moment who controlled the judges and who controlled the judges in Brooklyn was the Brooklyn Democratic political machine. And he understood that he had to cultivate ties with that Brooklyn political machine because they were doling out. They controlled the judges. They controlled the contracts. So he starts to create these ties and he gets a piece of the contract. But then his huge break comes when he realizes that the Federal Housing Administrator was also a tool of the Brooklyn machine. And he starts to curry favor with this person, a guy named Tommy Grace. And he gets this outsized portion of Federal Housing Administration loans, which enables him to build these huge projects in Brooklyn and Queens. And before World War II is over, he becomes a millionaire in 1940s dollars. And that's what launches him, the ability to see that it's government support of real estate that is going to lift it all up. And he had to get to the decision makers to make sure that when they had discretion, things were going to go his way. And I mean, that is so defines the Trump business model through the decades, currying favor with whoever, figuring out where is the person who is going to be able to deliver the thing you want, and then figuring out how to curry favor with that person, whether it's through a donation, whether it's through giving to their favorite charity, whether it's through charming them and taking them on his helicopter. There were a variety of ways, but Fred Trump and then Donald Trump sort of used, went through all of them. And you talk about the Kushner family also figuring out how to pull those levers as well. How old was Jared Kushner when he made his first political donation? (laughs) Eleven. This was one of the donations that his father had orchestrated. Uh, And so if you you can go and look it up in the federal elections, it says, uh, records, it says Jared Kushner student. And it was like $1,200? $2,000. It was two separate contributions of $1,000, I think. 
You can hear more of my conversation with Andrea over in the Trump Inc. podcast feed. And while you're there, dig back into their archives. It's an incredible show with meticulous investigative reporting that's also really fun to listen to. Another recent episode I loved is called Turning Politics into Money. That's Trump Inc., Inc. like Incorporated. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.